Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus will play a number of different roles. In verses 1 through 11, he played the role of the honored guest, and now he's playing the role of the gracious host in verses 12 through 26 at this supper, which has been called the Lord's Meal or the Last Supper. Clearly, it's an extraordinary Passover for so many different reasons. It's not only... The last Passover for Jesus, it's the last meal of his life. Jesus had authorized Peter and John in Luke chapter 22, verse 8, to prepare this upper room for the final Passover that he would celebrate. And later in the chapter, we will see Jesus as the submissive son in verses 27 through 42 and a little bit later we'll see him playing the role of the obedient prisoner in verses 43 through 72 the new testament pays a lot of attention to the events surrounding this upper room experience in john's gospel john devotes five chapters to the events Mark only covers a couple of things in the upper room. He concentrates on the betrayal of, G of Judas and then the Lord's Supper or what we would call the Servant's Supper. The Servant's Supper invites us to look back to the cross, which reminds us of what Jesus has done. But then it invites us up to the throne in heaven where Jesus is tells us what's going on and the full implications of this new covenant and then implores us to look into the future to the coming of Jesus. And so in verse 22, look what it says, the servant's supper. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat. This is my body. We look first into the past. In the traditional Jewish Passover, there would have been one Passover cup. And then a second Passover cup. And then finally a third Passover cup. Then Jesus, it says, took one of the unleavened loaves. Think in your mind a piece of bread, but it's going to be look way more like a tortilla than a loaf of bread. He blesses it, breaks it, and he tells those who are present, this is my body. 
Then he takes the fourth and final Passover cup. He blesses it. He gives it to them. And he says, this is my blood. So what did Jesus say? When he says he takes the bread, blesses it and breaks it. And he says, this is my body. You have heard those words so often in so many different circumstances that sometimes it loses its original impact. Jesus is in effect saying, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand what this last meal represents. I want you to understand about my suffering. I want you to understand the teaching. I want you to understand what it is that we're celebrating and why it is that we're celebrating. The bread remains bread. The wine remains wine. But the Lord is going to give new meaning to both the bread and the wine as memorials of his death. There is a sense in which I'm reminded of a story that takes place in 2 Samuel. Some of you are familiar with this story. David speaks of longing for a drink of water from his hometown in Bethlehem, from the well. And three of his mighty men make their way past the encampment. They secure the, the water. They bring it back to David. And David is overcome with emotion. As he's overcome with emotion, he understands the sacrifice that's been made by these men in order to satisfy his thirst. And he says something remarkable. He says to drink this water would be like drinking their blood. What does that mean? He doesn't want to cheapen the incredible sacrifice that they've made. And so he pours the water out on the ground As a drink offering. We see several things very quickly in verse 22. That I want to go over. That you don't want to miss. Number one. Jesus took bread and the cup. The bread by the way represents the body. And the cup the blood of Jesus. There's nothing magical about the bread or the blood. As Jesus takes both bread and cup. We're reminded that Jesus takes upon himself a new nature. In other words, you have to understand something. Jesus wasn't always flesh and blood. The Bible teaches that Jesus existed before time began. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. The Bible teaches that Jesus took on himself a new nature, a second nature, a human nature, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. And That nature included everything that it meant to be human, including the ability to suffer and including the ability to die. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, it says, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you've prepared for me. And in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 10 By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus was going to be sacrificed once for all. Second, 
Jesus blesses the bread. He gives thanks for the cup. And we're immediately reminded that the Lord Jesus will humble himself. He will submit to God the Father's plan, the divine plan, which is also going to include his suffering, his death. You know, we sometimes forget the imagery that's given to us in the Old Testament of Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 10, where the prophet relates that it pleased God to bruise him. You might find that remarkable. What? God took pleasure? Apparently he did. Because the sacrifice of Jesus is going to be a bitter cup for Jesus to swallow. But that bitter cup is going to ensure your salvation. And number three, Jesus broke it. That is the bread. In the breaking of the bread, we see symbolized and memorialized the enduring of suffering in that body. And number four, Jesus said, that is, he explains what the bread and the wine represent. His body, his blood. Not like the Roman church teaches. I grew up in that particular uh, church. I was taught from a very early age that the bread literally becomes the body and that the wine literally becomes the blood. But yet, even in the Roman Catholic translation of John chapter 6, verse 63, we read, it is the spirit that quickeneth or it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you, they are spirit. And they are life. Jesus understands that in the Passover and this meal that is being taken, this extraordinary meal, wine can nourish your body, food can nourish your body. But how is it possible that red wine or a lamb's death can nourish your soul? Jesus understood that his word is spirit. And it is life. And and number five, Jesus gave it to them. That is the bread and the wine. In like manner, Jesus gives himself to us and for us, according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. So when Jesus said, take the bread and the wine, we take Jesus. Not in a religious ritual. We don't just simply take Bread, And we don't just simply take juice, but rather we take Jesus by grace through faith. And by the way, taking Jesus is an act of faith. In John chapter 1 verse 12 it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, to those who were born not of blood, but of the will, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that you can't receive Jesus by simply ingesting a piece of bread. Or by drinking juice, but you receive Jesus by grace, through faith. And number seven, Jesus invites his disciples to take and eat. And so it's essential for those who believe in Jesus that they should derive nourishment from him. By the way, it's our custom at Calvary that we have communion. 
on the first Wednesday of every month. So if you come only on Sunday, then the chances are you're not going to have communion. We, we believe in what's called the believer's supper or the believer's communion, where believers come together and they participate in the nourishment that's given to G- by Jesus. And so, again, we remember his words. My words are spirit and they are life. It isn't just simply physical bread or juice that feeds the soul. Jesus gives us a clue in John chapter six, verse 54. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day in John chapter six, verse 55. As a matter of fact, if you have a Bible and you turn to John chapter six. After verse 55, it says, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. In verse 56, it says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Verse 57, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. Verse 58, this is the bread which came down from heaven Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. He talks about a type of bread that was eaten by the Jews in the wilderness. But that bread didn't result in life. And then he contrasts it with a bread that comes down from heaven. He came down from heaven. And so Jesus says... You have to participate in him. He will nourish you. And so, again, he's speaking of his sacrifice. Jesus isn't suggesting even for a moment that a religious ritual and the consumption of those elements bring life. Jesus invites the disciples to investigate what is about to happen. The cross of Calvary, his suffering and his death. Paul understood it completely when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. He says his death, speaking of Jesus' death, is the price for our salvation. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, how we pass into God's presence. The propitiation of our guilt in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. The peacemaker for our reconciliation in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. The power of our Christian life. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. The provider of our blessing. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. The plea of our testimony. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. How then do we eat this body? How do we drink this blood? The Bible says by and through the word of God, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. It says in John chapter six, verse 63, the Bible says that in the beginning was the word in John one, one and the word was with God and the word was God in John chapter one, verse 14. It says, and the word was made Flesh. So what is the word? The word is the express communication of God. It's we might think of the word of God as being the message that God has. 
And so Jesus is the message that God has for us. Jesus says the same thing. He that hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life in John chapter 5 verse 24. It says in verse 23, here, then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. In other words, as Jesus gives the cup and everyone drinks from it, he is empowering this cup with a brand new message. And after dipping in the common bowl, you'll remember Judas went out into the night in John chapter 13, verse 30. And so, again, it's at this point that Judas is already long gone. So the meaning in brief, he takes humanity upon himself. He breaks, that is, the bread becomes a type and a picture of his broken body on the cross of Calvary. Because, again, it's not the religious ritual but rather the sacrifice itself that creates forgiveness and hope. He took humanity. He broke his body. He gave himself for us. And so it is in that giving of himself that he creates the new covenant ratified in his blood. Look what it says in verse 24, the servant's supper, the blood in the covenant. And so in verse 24, it says, and he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Do you remember what a covenant is? A covenant is an agreement between two parties. That's fairly simple. A covenant is an agreement Between two parties. When Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. He is the principal party. Who is the other principal party? Which is shed for many. These are the people who identify with Jesus. Who love him. Who believe in him. So a covenant is an agreement between two parties. The first party, Jesus says, I am willing to forgive your sin and reconcile you to the father. What is the portion that the second party provides? Their sin. That's what you bring to the table. You don't bring grace. You don't bring mercy. You don't bring hope. You bring your sin To the table. We look into the present and what Jesus is doing with this new covenant. Now, remember what you have to do is you contrast and compare the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant was ratified by blood, but not just any kind of blood, the blood of animals. Do you remember in the book of Leviticus, there was a series of offerings, a burnt offering, a grain offering, A peace offering, a sin offering, a trespass offering. In the burnt offering, in the grain offering, in the peace offering, in the sin offering, and the trespass offering, the purposes of these of these offerings were to to denote a surrender to God, a substitutionary atonement. But remember what the blood of animals could do. They could only cover sin. They could never 
cleanse sin. The new covenant was ratified in the blood of the Son of Man. The new covenant in the blood of the Son of God would do what the old covenant could never do. One took away sin in a temporary way. The sacrifice of Jesus takes away sin permanently. The old covenant could cleanse the conscience only for a time. The sacrifice of Jesus cleanses the conscience of the believer forever. So what is this new covenant? John Stott writes, quote, It is a new heart righteousness, which the prophets foresaw as one of the blessings of the messianic age. I will put my spirit within them, Ezekiel 36, 27. I will write it upon their hearts, Jeremiah 31, 33. How would he do this? He told Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. How is God going to put his spirit inside of you? How is he going to cause you to understand what it means to know him and to love him and to have a right relationship with him? It's the sacrifice of Jesus is going to allow for the forgiveness of sin, which is going to allow for a reconciliation to take place. The old covenant, it says in John 1:17, came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. The old covenant came by Moses and not by faith, it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 12. The old covenant was ended by Christ, according to Romans 10.4. The old covenant was a shadow, but the new covenant was light. The old covenant left people imperfect, according to Hebrews 7.19. The new covenant leaves them perfect. In what way? Complete. The new covenant came by Jesus. And it's called the law of Christ, the law of righteousness, the law of the spirit, the law of faith, the law of liberty. And so it makes us free. According to the Bible, it saves to the uttermost. According to the Bible, there were many sacrifices in the old covenant. But according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, There is one sacrifice for sin, the person of Jesus Christ. In the old covenant, they had many priests. We have one eternal priest in the person of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17, he is the eternal priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. The old covenant came out of Levi. The new covenant comes out of Judah. The old covenant involved an imperfect mediator. The new covenant involves a sinless mediator. The old covenant perfected nothing. The new covenant perfects everyone who comes to Jesus by faith. They experience his grace and his mercy. The old covenant brought bondage and a curse. It was unable to impart life. What it was able to do was expose sin. The new covenant brings liberty and justification and redemption from the curse. It's lived out by faith. It gives life under grace. And so Paul writes that the old covenant is done away with in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. And the new covenant is eternal. It's never done away with in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. 
The old covenant is abolished. A ministry of death only for Israel. The new covenant glorious. A ministry of reconciliation available to all men. Jew and Gentile. No wonder one Bible teacher says we are not saved from our sins by participating in a religious ceremony, but by trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. No wonder David Watson wrote this meal, this extraordinary meal is for sinners only. You'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, Paul writing about it said, The Lord said, do this in remembrance of me. By the way, the word remembrance that's translated means way more in memory of. You can have a memory of the dead. You can do things in memory of people you love and people who have died. But Jesus is alive. So when he says, do this in remembrance of me, the word carries with it the present participation of a past event which results in a present benefit. Life, love, communion, reconciliation. The servant's supper isn't a magical or simply mystical or religious event Produced by bread and cup, but it is a spiritual experience by faith. We have communion with Jesus. We discern the truth about his identity and the meaning of the supper. When Elizabeth I was asked about the very presence of Christ in the sacrament, she replied, "'Twas God the word that spake it. He took the bread and brake it, and what the word did make it. That I believe and take it. You understand what she was saying? She's saying, I believe that it is everything that Jesus says that it is. John Stott wrote, the sacraments have been given to us in order to stimulate our faith. In fact, they're the means of grace, mainly because they are means of faith. And the Lord's Supper is a means of faith because it set forth in dramatic symbolism the good news that Jesus died for our sins so that we might be forgiven. And that you need to understand something that all of the disciples from there until now would come to that conclusion concerning this extraordinary meal that it spoke of Jesus's death Jesus's sacrifice John Wesley prayed at communion Lord I'm no longer my own but yours put me to what you will rank me with whom you will let me be employed by you or laid aside for you exalted for you or brought low by you let me have all things let me have nothing i freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal and now O glorious and blessed god father son holy spirit you are mine and i am yours so be it amen when you receive Jesus, you have everything. You're not left without anything. 
And so the servants suffer the belief and the claim. Look again in verse 25. Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine. It's a it's it's a picture of the wine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Listen to what he's saying. Assuredly. Remember what that word means. It means what I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. Now, remember also, it doesn't mean that everything else that he said isn't true. It just means listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What is he talking about? Remember, we've looked in the past at the cross. We look in the present in heaven and then we look into the future of what Jesus will do. Here's what he's doing. Jesus promises a future glorious kingdom. Jesus promises a future glorious celebration. Who's there? He is. Who else is there? You are. He's there and you are there. What is the basis for this future kingdom? What is the basis of this glorious celebration? It's his sacrifice. It's not the religious ritual of eating bread and drinking juice. But that that what it does is it reminds us, it provokes us, it causes us to think because the promises are made to those who partake of that body and that blood. How important is it? It's as important as your future. Jesus promises a day when all true believers will sit with him in the kingdom of God. They will sit in what theologians have called the marriage feast of the lamb. This is the promise of perfection. This is the promise of living forever in the new heaven and the new earth. As a matter of fact, there's a sneak peek that Paul provides in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. In Romans 8 and 16 and 17, Paul writes, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified with him. So Jesus says, my sacrifice will ensure your future. That's the point. For Jesus, joy takes place in the future when he returns to the earth and he sets up his holy kingdom. And this is interesting. That little statement that's made in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives For those of you who have been following along in our Bible study, remember what we learned earlier, that the Passover meal was celebrated sometime after dark, six o'clock to midnight. If you want more information, read the Gospel of John, all of those chapters that contain all of the information that took place. Now it's midnight. It is the darkest of the darkest moment of the night. They sing a hymn. At this point, the Lord and his disciples probably sang either one or all. 
of what's called the Hallel Psalms. That's Psalm 113, Psalm 114, Psalm 115, Psalm 116, Psalm 117, Psalm 118. Now, think about this for just a moment. Jesus sings hymns of strongest praise just hours before his crucifixion. Haven't you noticed that sometimes singing a song will just embolden your heart? It will feed your spirit. This morning when it was 14 degrees, I got out, I'm headed for the church, and I remembered the song, Is it just me or have you felt a bitter wind against your soul? I do believe the world grows colder every day, and the hearts of men are frozen by a fear they can't control, and a future filled with sorrow, in a world without tomorrow, and the need to see beyond the icy grave. I know I do that kind of stuff, I Which one of the hymns did they sing? We're not told. But in Psalm 118, which is one of the Hallel, in Psalm 118, verses 14 through 17, the psalmist writes, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory Resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I want you to think of the context. Sorrow, betrayal, uncertainty, perplexity. And they sing. They sing a song. It says in Psalm 118 verse 17... I will not die, but live and proclaim what the Lord has done. But he will die. But he'll live again. There were some missionaries who were talking about Christianity to Mahatma Gandhi. Some of you are familiar with him. Gandhi was a slight fellow, very frail. You'll remember that he would walk around barefooted, and because he had such a bad diet, he was very, very, very thin, very, very, very frail. His feet would have become very, very calloused. He would have always had a problem with his breath. That's why he was super fragile, calloused, mystic, Plagued with halitosis. All right, I'll stop. I'll stop. A bunch of guys talked to him about Christianity. He said, what hymn would you suggest to me which summarizes what you believe? The missionaries got together and they said, when I survey the wondrous cross, you know how it goes? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? 
were the whole realm of nature mind that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing. So divine. Demands my soul. My life. My all. Jesus. And the disciples. Live, leave Jerusalem. It's still Passover. Lights are everywhere. People are everywhere. They come out of the city of Jerusalem. He goes towards the wall. He goes out the gate. He passes over the brook, Kidron. Remember, this is the little river that flows just outside of the city. This is the little river that has been channeling the blood that has been sacrificed all day long, not by one lamb, not by ten lambs, not by a thousand lambs, not by ten thousand lambs. Think of a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, a rich red river, and they pass over the Kidron. He goes to the Mount of Olives. It's the depth of the night. And Gethsemane is on its way. One day when the Duke of Wellington was at the communion table, there was an old and extremely poor man who took his place beside him. And Usher was about to ask him to leave, but the Duke, sensing what was going on, grasped the elderly man's hand and whispered, Do not move, friend. We are all equal here. That's what the sacrifice of Jesus does. That's what the bread and the blood, the body, that's what it does. It makes everyone equal. Equally in need of a savior. King, peasant, Lord, servant. They come to Christ with the same need. He took humanity upon himself. He broke. He was about to be broken on the cross. He gave. He gave himself for us. William Penn wrote, Right is right, even if everyone is against it. Wrong is wrong, even if everyone is for it. The bright light between right and wrong must never be confused. John Newton, when he was losing his memory and he was coming towards the end of his life, he said, there are two things that I remember. That I am a great sinner. And that Jesus is a great savior. If you forget everything else. If for whatever reason your life becomes so consumed and preoccupied with all other things, there are two things that you must never forget. No wonder Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Paul recognized that he was a great sinner. But he also knew that he had a great savior. Maybe you, like me, grew up in a religious system where you thought, you entertained the idea 
that having a religion was the way to have relationship with God. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that in order to have a personal relationship with God, you have to confess that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself. You have to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he's the son of God, that he alone can save you. If you are laboring under the illusion that you can be saved because of your commitment to religious principles, then you're going to be sorely mistaken. Do you want to know how you can have a personal relationship with God? Acknowledge that salvation is yours when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that you're saved by grace through faith. And then ask Jesus to come into your life. Ask Him to be your Savior. Ask Him to be your Lord. From this day forward, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, if any person is in Christ, they're a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. Behold, everything has become new. And so, love so amazing. A cross so wondrous. This meal is extraordinary. And this meal is supernatural. Because of who broke the bread and who blessed the cup. And he calls each Christian in every generation to be reminded of his sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this love so amazing. Heavenly Father, for that person who has never confessed that they're a sinner who understand that they can't save themselves, who have never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, that he's the Son of God, and that he alone can save you. Lord, for the person who's living under the illusion that there's something else, or there's someone else, Lord, I pray that you would break that yoke of bondage. How in the world, Lord, would someone want Religion rather than a relationship. And so, Lord, again, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you. Lord, we thank you for the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the hope that we find in Jesus. And Lord, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.